Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good and faithful. Lord, we thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us. Lord, just thinking over these years as a church, and as George is describing, uh, just some of these efforts, Lord, you have been making great efforts to reach your people since before you created this world. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son. We thank you, Lord, for reconciling all things and all people to you. Lord, we thank you for the good news that we get to live and we get to share with others that there is peace in you. Lord, we just pray that you will strengthen us as a church, strengthen us to be more effective in our efforts, in our efforts of spreading the gospel, of supporting the spirit, of joining in the work that you are doing. Uh, Lord, and, and strengthen us to experience more and more the joy and the peace of our salvation and of knowing you. Lord, be with us this morning. Help us to be faithful with your word and faithful as a church. Lord, meet us this morning here. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if, you're, if you are joining us uh, for the first time this week, we're in the midst here of a series on the gathering of God's people, kind of a series over what it looks like when the people of God get together. Uh, George has preached here the first three, seri- the f- three sermons on this. I get a chance to preach a couple of sermons in, this, in the midst of this as well. And we've seen some different aspects of what it looks like for the people of God to gather. And really, as we continue this series, it really is a continuation of the story of God's people and really a continuation of the story of God's promises. As we've walked through last week, right, we were in Exodus, and this week we're continuing to be in Exodus. And if you don't know the story of God's people, right, really briefly, it, it, most of us are kind of familiar generally with the story, but from Genesis through Deuteronomy is just one book. That's one book of the Bible. That's that opening book, these five books combined together. And the story is pretty straightforward. God promises to a people, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will always take care of you. I will never forsake you. I will only give good to you. I will take you and I will put you in a place that I have created for you and made for you, a place where you will experience rest, where you will experience peace, where you will have shalom, this just wholeness with God, being with God in a place that he made. That's the promise all the way through. However, the story, the narrative, I mean, right away from the flood on, you get all of these threats to that promise. Will the people of God ever experience what God promises them? Will they ever experience this peace? Where is this rest that God promised them? Where is this going to be? When will it actually happen? And they continue to turn away from God. They continue to not trust that he has good for them. And eventually they find themselves at the end of Genesis enslaved. Enslaved in a foreign nation, right? The farthest place from where God told them they were to be with him. Enslaved to a nation, enslaved to their gods, worshiping other things. And you wonder what will happen to them. And as George preached here the last couple of weeks with Passover and with uh, the Song of Miriam, God delivers. He delivers his people. It's just unbelievably. He delivers them from the mightiest nation of the time. By his mighty arm, he conquers the Egyptian army, right? They, in the Red Sea, they get 
they get taken to a place of safety in the desert, and they sing, and they rejoice, and they dance, like George talked about. And even then, God goes even further. And this next section of Exodus that we're going to look at today, it's not enough that he just delivered them, but he establishes with them a covenant. He takes away any doubt about his intentions towards his people. Because you could wonder, he keeps delivering them, but for how long is this going to continue? Will God always do this? Right? One of these days, will he not deliver us? So God takes his people aside. He takes Moses and he establishes a covenant where he says, formally again, right, in person this time, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will always have good for you. I choose you. Of all the people of the world, I choose you. And I will be faithful to you and you alone. And you are to have no other gods but me. This is a very reasonable request. The imagery throughout the Old Testament is of marriage. That God marries these people. I will be your groom. You will be my bride. I will always love you. I will always protect you. I will always care for you. You should have no other husband but me. If you do these things, if you stay faithful to me, I will keep you and I will sustain you. But if you choose another God, if you want another husband, I will let you do that and you will experience the consequences of it. Our text today comes out of Exodus 24. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. It'll be on the screen as well as we walk through this, uh, this chapter here of 24. So this comes right after God has established this with Moses. He just told them these things. I will be your God. You'll be my people. You should have no other gods before me. Then, verse 1, he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. 
the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is quite the scene. <laughs> these are kind of these narratives. It's easy to just kind of gloss through quickly. All right, yep, gets the law. All the people kind of gather. This is, this is a really tremendous scene where you have you know, 60 to 100,000 people gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and in a small oasis there. It kind of puts our heat into perspective. And they gather together. Moses comes down from talking with God and the entire nation gathers as one people. And they've seen miraculous things. They have been rejoicing in this God, and they have seen this God from afar with Moses. And Moses comes, and he tells them everything that God has promised to them and what he requires of the nation. And the nation replies. With one voice, they reply, right? We will do it. Whatever this God requires of us, we will do it. It's a good response. But it's not even finished. It's not a finished response. It goes, it continues, right? If you look at the narrative, then Moses writes it all down rather than just speak it to the people. He writes down everything that was said to him by God. He gets up early the next morning and builds an immense altar, right, with these 12 pillars. I don't know how long it took him, but he must have gotten up early. But he builds a huge altar for the whole nation to gather. He makes sacrifices, gathers the people again, prepares a basin of blood and others for sacrifice. Like, what is going on? gets them together, and again, very serious, very formally now, there can be no doubts in the people's mind what God requires, right? He's like, you, you said yes yesterday. Let's check in with you again today, right? In the presence of the sacrifices, in the presence of God at this altar, and the people again respond, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Then Moses takes the blood to really show, right, the seriousness of the covenant that they are entering. He takes blood and he sprinkles it on them. He showers the people in blood, showers the altar with blood. This is a serious binding covenant that we've entered into today. Then he leaves with the elders, goes up on the mountain, and encounters, enters that cloud with the Lord on the top. Yeah, that is, that is a scene. <laughs> if you could imagine 60,000 people covered in blood chanting that we will obey and do all that the Lord requires and the mountain on fire and Moses. and that, that, that is an amazing, amazing response. It's a fitting response. If the nation of Israel didn't respond this way, we would have some serious doubts and questions 
right, about their seriousness and about the God that they served. And in fact, you know, our hearts long for responses like this. As we read this, if you put yourself in that position, right, we love, we love promises. We love responses to promises. We love faithfulness. We love pledges and oaths and these types of things. This, this is it. We love a good oath. We love someone bound by duty, someone bound to their promise. If you think about just the movies we watch, the art that we look at, the books that we read, history's great heroes, right? If you think, I was a history major, so I love history and things, but I mean, those are the heroes, right? We love to tell their stories. Those men and women who make pledges of faithfulness. When everyone else falls away, I won't. Who will charge into the battlefield, who will reward the people that they care for, who will protect and care for them. We love the story of faithful leaders who promise and pledge themselves to those who are under their care, and then those who are under their care pledging back to them this mutual faithfulness and pledging. And we love that, that kind of stuff. It, it drives us, the hope of that being real drives us in almost every aspect of our life, right? We think about the relationships that we're in and we have. If you, if you are married, right, why did you pledge yourself? Uh, if you're not married, why do we still pledge ourselves? Our culture today oftentimes looks at marriage kind of askance or, or negatively, but there's no lack of pledges. There's no lack of oaths given. There's no lack of giving oneself to someone else, Poetry, love poetry, this has always been there. C.S. Lewis writes, this is a good indication that our hearts were made for this. We were made to pledge ourselves to someone, to something. We, we long to do it. We long to find someone who's worthy of our allegiance. We long to have someone who promises to be faithful to us so I can be faithful to them and that we can live in this type of a relationship. I mean, it's what we were made for. The Bible shows this over and over and over again, and this text here shows it to us. We were made for these faithful covenant relationships with people, but ultimately with God. And what Israel is doing, right, this, this fulfills their greatest desire from the very beginning. It fulfills our great desires. We desire to be committed. We desire for someone to be committed to us, someone to have our back. That one day, right, we long for it. Even if you don't believe in a God, everyone longs for there to be a God who would actually be faithful, who would actually reward his people and punish evil and wickedness. A God who would want there to be loyalty. Right? We know this narrative. We want that narrative to be true. We want, there, we want our rulers to require loyalty of people underneath them. We want people to be faithful we long for a God who will delight in rewarding the righteous and punish the wicked. And when confronted with this God and his word, right, when we get confronted with a God like this, the only response is obedience. It's to cry out, oh Lord, whatever you require, what can I, how can I hold back from you? It's a fitting response of God's people to respond to the presence of God, to respond to his word, and to respond to his promise with faithfulness. 
the people of God were never intended to simply sit back and receive the promises of God idly. But we're going to see that pattern continue through the Bible, through the New Testament, Old Testament, through the church, through culture. Like the people of God were never designed to just sit and receive, receive, receive the promises of God and not do anything with it. Israel will time and time again be told the promises. The king's job of Israel will be to read the law to them again. The same thing Moses read to them. Read this to the people and the people will respond, yes, we agree, we will do it again. And they continue to renew that covenant time and time again. Israel hears the law and they respond to it. They hear the promises and they respond with faithfulness and obedience, pledges to be faithful, pledges to be obedient. This is the pattern in the New Testament as well, right? Jesus and his brother James, they continue to tell God's people these things. Don't just be hearers of the word, right? If you love me, if you love my word, do what I've commanded. Do this. Be obedient to it. Paul will continue to remind the churches, right, to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, to put into practice the words of God. Hebrews It will continue to call the church to faithfulness. There's lessons here. There's clearly lessons here in Exodus and throughout the Bible for us as the people of God. I mean, much of our culture, and especially our church culture today in America, if you just think about the church traditions that you've come out of, the church services you've been in, our church services that we've had, we have a very well-established pattern of passive reception of ideas. It's how we love, we love to learn that way. Even thinking of like popular culture, right? TED Talks or anything else. We love to sit and hear great ideas or truth. Think about it, process it, and then go out and tell other people that we heard such a great talk. And then that's kind of it. Rarely, right, in our culture, do we experience times of corporate solidarity where as a people... We hear something so profoundly true, so profoundly beautiful, that we respond together with one voice, especially in obedience or faithfulness. Like, yes, I will do that. I pledge myself to that. If we do those things, it's almost always political, right? We have these things. We have the Pledge of Allegiance, right? That's a corporate act of solidarity where we pledge ourselves to, to a nation. We have it, right, when citizenship comes up, right, where you have to make these pledges and oaths. We have it around when you join the military or things like that. With the church, though, especially the church in America, we don't do much stuff corporately (laughs) together, right? We leave it up to individuals. If you individually want to commit yourself to the Lord and to his plan and his purposes, you should. And if you do, right, we'll bow our heads and you can raise your hand so nobody can know and then later I'll talk to you individually about your commitment. But we don't want everybody to know you just commit. Or if we do an individual, maybe baptism gets close to that, where we have the church gathers together. But again, it's one person making a commitment. Oftentimes the, the church doesn't have a role other than just being a spectator. But we're, we're really well trained in our American kind of culture, especially church culture, to just sit and receive, not to participate, not to answer back to the promises that we've been given. Now, that said, I mean, there's also a lot of good reasons why we don't (laughs) do this very often or make those types of corporate pledges because we also have experienced 
plenty of times, the mere effect of all of these promises, all of these oaths, all of these things, and we know that our hearts are wired to be committed, to be faithful, to promise. And we love someone to promise faithfulness to us, and we love to promise faithfulness to others. I mean, we know that. But we also know and have mostly a lot of experiences with broken promises and empty oaths, just ritual and words that mean nothing. Going through the motions, saying things, and then being let down. The hurt and the disappointment. I mean, history in the arts, right, praises the faithful, but history in the arts also gives us a long list of the unfaithful as well. And it seems like, I mean, just look at, at popular culture and media and the, the types of TV shows and books and the art today, I mean, is there a hero in anything? Right? The idea of a faithful hero, of someone who would actually keep his word and be loyal and true, I mean, it's, it's a fun fairy tale or it's nice for kids, right? but as you get older, you realize no one can really be faithful and no one can keep their promises. So we experience... Our heart longs for commitment and these pledges of faithfulness, but our experiences show us, and we felt the experiences of the unfaithfulness of others towards us, right? I mean, you've, there's people in your life who have not been faithful to you, who made promises and didn't live up to their promises. Your parents, certainly, right? Your spouse, certainly, right? Your employer. There's plenty of people in our life who continue to let us down. They make a promise, the church your house church leaders, the people in your community, right? They let you down. And there's consequences for this, this unfaithfulness of others. But even more alarming and troubling is when we come to grips or face-to-face with our own unfaithfulness and the fact that I let others down and I'm the one who has not been true to the word that I gave or the promises that I made. Because in fact, those of you who know the story Right? know what's going to come next in Exodus, right? I mean, they just promised twice in a matter of within 24 hours. They just promised, we will not have any other gods. We will follow this God. Absolutely. We are in. Formal, I mean, they covered in blood saying, we will follow God. Moses goes up the mountain, and they're going to build another God right away within these 40 days. The pattern is pretty clear through Scripture, through our lives, through the culture, what we see. While we promise faithfulness, we do not deliver. God is very faithful and good. Scripture teaches that very, very clearly. He chose us to be his people, but we are not a faithful or good people. And so you have this tension then, you have a tension throughout the Bible, and I think you see that tension in our culture today, which is being revealed in this, you know, why are there no heroes anymore? Why are there no happy endings? There's a tension then of, well, what are we going to do about this? What will God do about this? If we believe in a God, and as you read the Old Testament, you wonder, what will God do as this faithful, good husband? How long will he go along with this unfaithful wife of his? Can God ever be trusted? Can people ever be trusted? If people can't keep their word, if people will always let us down, can I trust people? Can I trust myself? 
do I really believe and can I really believe that God has good in store for me when I don't deserve good and I know that I don't deserve good? If God promises good for the faithful and I'm not the faithful, right, what is in store for me? And it's that constant fear or dread of the other shoe falling. I don't know if you grew up this way. If you grew up evangelical or Christian like I did, something bad happens and you just go right to that, oh, I know why. I, w- I, I sinned last week or I sinned last night. That's why these bad things are happening to me. If, all right, if I can just get my act together and become more obedient and faithful, then God will start rewarding me again. All the bad things in my life, oh, all right, I just... Does God have good for me? Well, only if I'm faithful. Then he'll have good for me. Can I really trust him to be good to me even when I continue to let him down? And there's a tension. And how are we going to respond to this? And how are the people of God going to respond to this tension, this desire for faithfulness, this desire to promise, but also this knowledge and knowing that my promises are going to be short-lived and the promises of others are going to be short-lived? And it seems like there's two responses we can do. And there's two responses in general that the church certainly walks in, the culture walks in, I know I walk in, where you can do two things in this. One, all right, if, if this is true, if, if there's unfaithfulness, if people are unfaithful, if I've been unfaithful, one response is to double down, right? I'm going to do it. I'm going to really work hard at this and I'm going to demonstrate and show that I'm not like the unfaithful in this world. Right? You look at like the divorce statistics or things like that, and you say, oh, that's not going to be me. I'm going to double down my efforts. I'm going to really make sure that I will not be one of them. I'm going to be extra faithful. I'm going to overcommit to God. Right? If God demands this of me, if he wants this of me, if he loves me so much, then I'm going to prove it to him. I will show him how serious I am, how much I love him. I will show my love for him and how much I will do for him. Where can I sign up? Right? What does God need? What does the church need? Anybody need? Right? And, and you live this life of an eagerness to prove your worth and your worthiness to God and to other people. When you see other people's unfaithfulness, and even your own, it pushes you towards even more efforts and more efforts of your own faithfulness to prove that you are not unfaithful. That was just a blip. That just happened. That's not me. I'm actually a really stable, steadfast, hard worker. I can do this. And you commit. But it's exhausting, right? I mean, some of you know this feelings. It's exhausting to live life this way. It's exhausting to kind of live a life where you are constantly trying to prove yourself and you're constantly worried about what other people feel. It's this exhausting fear of letting people down. I, I know, is that you? I mean, do you feel like you're constantly letting others down? Or that's the, the worry, right? Like, if I don't do this, I'm going to be letting somebody down. They're going to feel, and ultimately, I'll be letting God down. If I don't fulfill this duty, if I don't do this, man, what will people think of me? And it leads to that feeling of just being stretched so thin, right, where you're just in everything, doing everything, and you don't feel like, right, you can do anymore, and eventually you just feel like you've been going through the motions. So that's a popular way to handle it. <laughs> Crippling. 
way to handle it. It's the way I historically have handled it. The other way, and this is the other this is the extreme, this is where I go after I recognize this one, you just go to the other extreme too and you just say, look, I recognize, you know what, everyone's going to let me down and I'm going to let people down. So why just go through the motions and end up hurt? I just won't commit to anything. I value my personal freedom more than any other groups. So I'm not going to commit to something that puts me in an awkward position or, or that compromises my safety or my comfort. It's just easier for me to stand a little, have a little distance. I can be amongst a group, but I don't have to commit to this group. I can be near something and watch it and jump in and out as I feel fit but I know that I'm not going to be able to honor my commitment anyway. And, their event, and even if I commit, is this really the group or the things that I want to commit to? Because what if it changes? I mean, right now it all sounds good, but then I get in there, they're going to let me down, they're going to change something, I'm going to have to leave and it's going to get awkward. Just easier and better to just stay a little bit removed. But that doesn't satisfy us either, as many of you know. We always feel on the outside wishing to be on the inside, wanting community, wanting that covenantal relationship, like wanting people who really know you and love you, wanting a God who knows you intimately and who you know and you are following. I mean, we want that, but it just feels distant to us, right? Because our desire for freedom and safety and comfort is preventing me from responding with obedience. I'm not going to be obedient because... I don't want to get hurt, or I don't want to hurt others. And so you constantly have this feeling then of letting yourself down. Right, so the, the other extreme, you're always worried about letting everyone else down. The other, you just are very introspective and depressed and not very satisfied with who you are. And you don't really think highly of yourself at all. No one would really want me in their community anyway. It's a tension. It's a tension that we feel through scripture, it's a tension that we feel in our life, it's a tension that we feel in culture in the church, this living in fear constantly, either living in fear of letting people down, right, letting God down, or which, which we compensate for by staying busy and committing and doing and doing and doing to continue to prove ourselves, or this just living in a kind of melancholy, disappointed state of isolation where you can never be close or with anyone because you don't want to hurt others or be hurt yourself. So what could get us through this, right? What does this mean for the people of God? How can we be a covenant people who are responsive to God's word, who can commit to God and be obedient and be faithful, but also honest with ourselves and with each other? And this is where Christianity really is unique, right? I don't know if you've... Uh, I'm assuming most of you are pretty familiar with Christianity, but Christianity is so unlike any other philosophy, any other religion, any other system that's out there, anything else that would try to help you feel better about yourself or get you over your issues, because it actually offers us peace. This tension, right, this tension that we feel, that we see starting here, especially in Exodus, where God says, I will be faithful to you if you be faithful to me. And then God's people said, we'll be faithful to you. And then they're instantly unfaithful to him. When is that ever going to get resolved, this tension and this feeling within us? It finally gets resolved in the person of Jesus Christ. 
This is why the church sing songs about Jesus. This is why we pray to Jesus. This is why everything we do ultimately is about Jesus, because Jesus relieves this. He actually gives peace, because in Jesus Christ, right, if you didn't know this, Jesus is a man, but he's fully God. God becomes a man, enters into this world, and he suffers, not just suffers, but suffers in our place, relieving the tension that's been built up restoring the peace, restoring that shalom that we knew we could never have, making it possible for us to be in faithful covenant relationships. He reconciles our desire for faithfulness and our inability to be faithful. He he is our peace in the midst of that trial because in the end, God turns out to be as faithful as he promised. The Old Testament is true. He is as faithful a God as he said he was when it comes to rewards and when it comes to punishment. He's, he's exactly what he said. But he turns out to be more loving than we could have ever imagined. He was true to his word. He would honor his promise to bless the righteous and punish the wicked. That was the promise. I'll bless the righteous and I'll punish the wicked. But what we didn't see coming, or it was hard to see coming, was that he, in the person of Jesus Christ, took the punishment for the wicked for himself, turning the wicked righteous. And giving them, giving us, right, the blessing that he deserved. He flips it. He's true to his word. He just changed his bride. (laughs) This tension then of how can God be faithful? How can there be a faithful relationship, a covenant relationship between this faithful God and a faithless people? He makes his faithless people faithful. He flips it for us. And do you see the difference that makes? Right? I, I hope you can feel that freedom that that gives. If this is true, I now have confidence entering into the promises of God. When I hear God promise to me, he will be my God and I will be his people. And he requires faithfulness. He wants me to respond. I can respond. I can publicly declare my allegiance to Christ. I can commit to God. I can commit to his plan and his purposes, to his church, to the things that he's called me to with freedom and without fear now. Because, right, I have nothing to prove. Right, talking about that first, my first issue of trying to overcompensate and prove myself worthy. I have nothing to prove anymore. Jesus proved everything on my behalf. I am faithful. I am his child in whom he is well pleased. Right, those words to Christ are now the words to me. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. I have nothing left to prove. I can rest in the finished work of Christ. I'm obedient. I get the gift of obedience. It's not that, right, Christ doesn't free me from having to be obedient. He frees me to be obedient to him. I get to be obedient, not because I have to be or I promise I will be obedient. I get to be obedient because Jesus is obedient. And he's obedient for me. I have nothing to fear either. So that crippling fear of commitment, that crippling fear of making promises to groups or to people or to God, That's gone. I have nothing to be afraid of. If if the gospel is true, if Jesus has taken the wrath of God upon himself and flipped that over and is only blessings now for me, what do I have to be afraid of? Jesus talks about this continually, the fear of man. Like, I got nothing to be afraid of in my life anymore. 
I have all the acceptance that I'll ever need. I can confidently commit to God and to his purposes, knowing that people will let me down and knowing that I'll let them down. I can, I can know this. It doesn't hide me from the truth. I know I will let people down. I can covenant, I can promise faithfulness in my marriage knowing that I will let my wife down. I can promise faithfulness to the church knowing I will let people down and they'll let me, they'll let me down. I can promise these things because he is the one who has reconciled all of these things. He's reconciled my unfaithfulness and he's reconciled the unfaithfulness of others. He's reconciled it all. He's made peace. What do I have to be afraid of? What's the worst that can happen to me? I'm following Jesus. What can happen? What am I afraid of? Why am I afraid of man? Why am I afraid of people? Why am I so afraid to boldly and with confidence approach the throne and commit myself to God? I have this high priest. I have this intermediary. I have Jesus now. It's such a better covenant. It's such a better hope. I no longer have to stay back at the camp like Israel in Exodus. Because right? that was good. I mean, it was, it was great that, that Moses went to them. What a blessing that God gave them the law and they had the chance to respond. But only Moses got to go up the mountain. I get to go up the mountain. Right? Jesus came off the mountain to us. So I now have access to that throne. I can boldly claim what is mine because I'm faithful. Everything that was true of Christ is now true of me. So we can gather, when we gather together as the people of God, right, and as we talk about this, these gatherings that we are doing as a church and how we want to grow in these things and the elements that we want to see more incorporated, like we talked about singing and dancing, and we also want there to be the opportunity and more of a rhythms of chances for us to be responsive to God's word. We don't want to sit back and just hear God's word all the time and just take it in and take it in and take it in and take it in. We want to respond with faithfulness. We want to respond with obedience. He's a faithful God to us. He's never let us down, nor will he ever. I want to be faithful in my response to him. But now we have this boldness and confidence in doing so because it's not based on us or our abilities to be faithful, but it's based on Christ and his obedience and his faithfulness on our behalf. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. You are an exceedingly good and faithful God. You have not turned your back on your people. You have not turned your back on your promises. Lord, we worship you because of who you are, and we are humbled at the extent and greatness of your love, which we just can't even imagine or comprehend how great your love is for us, that you would take an unfaithful people and that you would bear the burden and the suffering that was meant for us on yourself. And credit to us, give us your righteousness and your faithfulness and to count us as obedient and faithful who are we? Lord, help us, strengthen us, Lord, to let that truth settle deep into our hearts, to let it free us from our fears, to free us from our anxiety and our worry, from our desires 
to try to please you and please others constantly. Help us to rest in you and in your finished work. Lord, give us wisdom in how we are to respond to you and to respond to your callings in our life. And what that looks like, Lord, in our marriages, in our neighborhood, at work, in the church. Lord, we want to be a people who are faithful. We want to be a people who are obedient to you. We want to be found as faithful servants on that day. You will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But Lord, help us to always remember that that's based on your faithfulness and your obedience. And so we walk as people who have a great hope and a great source of confidence as we follow you. Lord, we worship you and we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. Lord, help us. In your name, amen.